Here we are. As Steve has just said, the, the aim for the next few minutes is to give a, an introductory overview of this whole idea of looking at the broader message of the entire Bible in one chunk, stepping back, seeing the whole plot line, big story, big picture, uh, whatever you might want to call it. Might I, before we launch into what we want to do in these next few minutes, uh, encourage all of us to get this book by Vaughn Roberts. He's the pastor over at St. Ebbs, someone for whom I have a very great regard as a writer and a teacher. I've heard him preach, and he's always crystal clear. And he's done a, a very accessible, easy-to-follow book on exactly this theme, the big picture in the Bible of God's entire project from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God's big picture by Vaughn Roberts. Do yourself a favor, get the book. I think you'll enjoy it. He divides up the story in a slightly different way than I will now. Uh, I trimmed his version back slightly because we want to try and keep it more brief and concise. He divides it up into eight chapters. We're going to work this morning with six. So establishing the kingdom, a a six-part drama... When you work your way through, and I get this from Vaughn, when you work your way through the scriptures, you begin to see, before you get too terribly far, that there are recurring themes. There are three discernible themes in the Bible of God establishing his rule and his reign among his people. These are his people. There's always a people involved. There's a place surprisingly consistent, this idea of a place, and then there's a purpose. God's always up to something. And as you go through the chapters or the acts in the drama, you can see that these change somewhat. They, they sort of morph as you go along. So let's start at the most logical place to start, um, with creation, of course. The people, you didn't know that Adam and Eve were charismatic. There they are, raising their hands in the, in the garden, dancing around happy because they're rejoicing in the Lord. At the initial opening phase of the story, these humans whom God makes in Genesis 1 and then the stories retold in Genesis 2, they are the people of God. They are his representatives. He makes them in his image. The word there for image means essentially uh, reflection. I could say I see my my own image in the mirror, meaning it's my reflection. And humanity in Scripture is meant to image the Creator. So those are the people of God. They rule in God's name. They have a place. God assigns them a place. And of course, off the top, that is Eden, the Garden of Eden. And in chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 8, There's a significant detail we don't want to miss that it was God himself who planted that garden. When they moved in or when Adam woke up from the soil there, he was in a place, he was in a garden and God had planted it. Then Adam and Eve were assigned the task of managing it. And that's often the way God works. He will birth something. But then he asked, he draws us in in partnership with him to keep it moving and to manage it. That's the place at the beginning of the story, Eden. 
But perhaps most important in this equation, God's people, God's place, and God's purpose, is what he, is the, the agenda God has in this opening phase. And I think there's two, two sides to it. One is rule, and one is rest. Genesis 1.26, God says, let them rule. You, some Bibles translate it, let them have dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He commands them to fill the earth, to subdue it, to till the earth and keep it, although that command comes out in chapter 2. They're managers, they're rulers. And you know what? We all inherit part of that dominion mandate. Every single person in this room this morning has something in life over which God has given you authority. And we need to rule and reign over those things where he gives us responsibility. One place that without exception every one of us needs to rule is to rule our own spirit. That's what the New Testament calls self-control. The book of Proverbs speaks very urgently of ruling your own spirit. There's a place in there where Solomon asks, do you see a city without walls? There's more hope for that city than there is for a man who doesn't rule his own spirit. And maybe he was thinking back to his own father, David, who fell into sin because he didn't rule his own spirit at a crucial moment. He sees a woman bathing. He doesn't rule his own spirit. We're called to be rulers and to reign over our own spirits, over our own hearts and thoughts, and also over distinct areas of responsibility. Alongside that, there's another aspect of God's agenda for people. And that is he wants us to be able to rest. This picture of this fellow in the plaid shirt there is actually one of my students at KST during one of my lectures. You can see him enjoying the the talk I was giving. God calls us to be able to rest. So he, in six days, makes the world, and then he gives himself a day off. It's almost like he says... I've done such a good job at making this thing, I'm going to give myself a day off. And he does. And he blesses that seventh day and he sanctifies it and he invites us in to celebrate his sovereignty by resting, taking a day off. But you know, in in Scripture, Sabbath means more than simply a day of the week. It's a paradigm for living. We live, we can live in a state of rest. The scriptures frequently speak of the land having rest from its enemies. In Psalm 3, you don't need to turn there unless you wish, it's a crisis psalm. The third psalm, we're told by the circumcision, we're told by the the superscription, the little title at the top, the superscription, at the top, that David wrote this psalm during that dreadful time in his life when his son Absalom had turned against him and was after him in order to kill him. Now, many of us here are parents. Those of us that are parents know what it's like to have friction with our kids. I doubt any of us have had our own flesh and blood children want to kill us. And if any of us ever faced something that horrible, I I think it's fair to say we would probably toss and turn at night wondering where did I go wrong? Why do they hate me so much? In the middle of that psalm, David says this. He's on the run. He's on the run from Absalom, his own son. Psalm 3 verse 5, I slept 
and I woke again, for the Lord sustains me. There's a man in the midst of a life-threatening situation and an emotionally wrenching situation, and he gets a good night's sleep. Why? Because he knows God's in control. That's the thing we need to know to rest. The fellow in the picture knows God's in control. The only picture, I want to move on now to the next chapter in the story, but the only picture better than David resting when his son's after him is in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. We've got 13 men on the Sea of Galilee in a boat in a storm. Twelve of them are panicking. And one of them is having a nap because he knows his father is in control of the storm. You might be in a storm right now. Go have a nap. God's in control. Chapter 2. I need a new switch. Okay. Chapter 2 is a two-parter. We read here about crisis, but also a great commitment that God makes. The crisis, obviously, is Adam and Eve violate their covenant with God. They take from the tree of knowledge, which they were forbidden to do. And, of course, they're evicted from the garden. This introduces a very sobering time in the biblical story where it seems like things have gone dark. So our little threefold pattern, God's people, God's place, God's purpose. In this part of the story, who are God's people? One place I think I would differ a little bit with the Vaughn Roberts book, the way he handles this part of the story, he says God didn't have a people during this part of the story. Now I'd have to revisit that. First off the top, I think I, I would see it differently. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul is preaching and he says, God will not let himself be without a witness. Think of those words. God will not be without a witness. He will not let all the lights in his house go out. He won't do it. And even in these dark days from the eviction from Eden up to the call of Abraham, there's a lot of darkness, but there's also like lights going off. So Eve who led the way into the fall of eating the fruit. In chapter 4, she sees the goodness of God in the birth of her sons. When she has her sons, she says, go and have a look in chapter 4. God gave me this son. She's got that much going. God's with her. She knows that these things don't happen without God. At the end of chapter 4 in Genesis, history's first prayer movement, 426, it says, in those days, people began calling on the name of the Lord. A prayer movement. It was a dark time, but God hadn't let all the lights go out. Are you with me? We may feel that in our days today, but the the, the lights are not going out. The lights are still shining if we know how to see them. We see Enoch in chapter 5 just translated up into heaven. Almost like a mini rapture. But the best example in this part of the story of God's people, I call them God-trusters. People who in a dark season trusted God. They were God trusters in dark days. Probably the best example is Noah. He obeyed the Lord. We know elsewhere in scripture it took the better part of a hundred years for him and his sons to build that ship. But they kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. They were God trusters because they obeyed the Lord. God's people. 
God's place. What's God's place in this chapter, in this second chapter of the story? Here it is. It's the world he refuses to abandon. He evicts Adam and Eve from Eden, but there's a little P.S. at the end of Genesis 3 that I've often missed it, and recently I felt the Lord brought me back to it. It's Genesis 3, verse 5. It says, I'm not sure of the verse number on that. It might be later. Maybe it's 25. He sends Adam out to work the ground and keep it. There's two consecutive verses. One talks about him driving Adam out. It's like an eviction. He banishes him from from Eden. It uses a very strong verb, like, you're out of here, mister. But then parallel with that, in the very next verse, it says, in the same act, he was sending him. The word send there, it's used later in Genesis of Jacob sending his son Joseph to see how his brothers were doing. It was ascending with purpose. It was ascending where Jacob, Jacob's goodwill was behind Joseph. So if, can we see both sides of this? On the one hand, there's judgment, but on the other hand, there's faithfulness. God's, God's with Adam. He says, Adam, I'm sending you. It's a, it's a purpose word. I'm sending you out to work the ground from which you were taken. Remember the thorns thing? Thorn, the, the, the ground's going to produce thorns. Well, yeah, but God says, I'm not, like, not going to let the thorns take over. I'm sending someone to work the ground. What's the place? It's the world God refuses to abandon. And speaking of thorns, some of you know about this little connection we make. Where do thorns reappear in the New Testament? Where do thorns reappear in the passion narrative? Where do thorns reappear when the soldiers are tormenting and interrogating Jesus. They crammed that crown of thorns in his head. And that's a deliberate moment in the God story. The thorns of judgment come on to Christ. But meanwhile, back in, back in Genesis, God will not turn his back on his world. One of the ways we see that is he appoints a gardener even outside the garden. Think of that. A gardener outside the garden. God's still with this world. Finally, what is God's purpose It's mercy amid judgment. A moment that I find poignant and powerful at the same time, I think it's 321 in Genesis. Adam and Eve, of course, this first thing they notice after they sin, they realize they're naked, they're very embarrassed, self-conscious, and ashamed. So they try and use leaves to cover up their bodies. But then God comes to them with garments made of skins. He's covering their shame. Well, you know, that sense of shame is their own jolly fault. And we've all got the consequences of our sin going on in our lives. And if we're honest, we know, hey, it's my own jolly fault. What's he do for Adam and Eve? He doesn't say, well, run around in your leaves, see how much you enjoy it because you've made your bed and now you can jolly well sleep in it. But he doesn't treat us that way. He's a merciful God. He says, Adam, come here, Eve, come here. Here, try this on. I probably, he probably didn't say that because he's perfect and he wouldn't make things that misfit. So he, he, he gives them garments, I'm sure, that were comfortable and fit and were probably very, very 
long-lasting. He's covering them in the midst of the consequences of their own rebellion. Is that good news for sinners like me? Mercy for rebels, mercy for sinners, mercy for those who have disobeyed. And of course, at the other end of this section of Scripture, it starts at Genesis 4, goes up to uh, the end of Genesis 11, Genesis 6 all the way up to 10 and 11 is really about the flood and the aftermath of the flood. And so the biggest example of God's mercy amid judgment is the great boat that Noah commissions Noah and his family to build so that despite the severity of the judgment of the flood, life will go on. Death will not have the last word. He gives the world a new beginning. You may recall after Noah and his family come out of the ark, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He says that to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard those words before in the Bible? He says precisely, word for word, letter for letter, what God had said to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. So coming out of the ark, God gives Noah, his family, and the human race a new beginning, a chance to begin anew, and how we all need that. Mercy and judgment. Mercy amid judgment. Chapter 3. Covenant. Who are God's people? In this section of the story, they are Abraham, Abram initially, then God changes his name to Abraham, and his descendants. At the beginning of chapter 12, God calls Abram, Abram, uh, he lives in Ur, many, many miles from the land God would give him. When God steps in, in the beginning of Genesis 12, what he's doing is stepping in to fix the mess that happened in Genesis 1 to 11. Adam caused a train wreck. God says, I'm going to fix the demolition caused by the train wreck. And the way I'm going to do it is to raise up one man and through him I will raise up a nation that is going to extend my blessing to all the nations of the earth. We'll come back to that blessing theme in a moment. The key to this man and to the people God will raise up through him, we get in Genesis 17, verse 7. That's a good verse to know and underline and think about. Genesis 17, verse 7, one of the many promises God gives um, Abram alongside the land promise, I'll come back to that, is I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. I've spoken on this verse in this pulpit other times. English Bibles customarily translate that verse, I will be your God, which is okay, but it's not exactly what the Hebrew says. Hebrew is a bit more punchy and pithy. It says, I will be God to you. Whatever is wrapped up in God being God, God says to Abraham, I'll be all of that to you. And here's the punchline, saints. I will be all of that to you and to your descendants after you. And according to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, I think it's verse 29, if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed. That means this, I will be God to you promise, belongs to you this morning. Do you believe that? This is potent stuff, folks. I hope we get a few shivers up our spines knowing the magnitude of some of these promises. J.I. Packer, who some of you may know and appreciate his writings, he's having to retire now because he's losing his eyesight. He's in his 90s. 
He wrote an amazing book in the 70s called Knowing God. If you've never read it, God will probably forgive you for not having read it. But see if you can get hold of Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's rich. I mean rich. And he has a statement in there. He gives a couple pages on this I will be God to you statement. And he calls it a moving van promise. The moving van promise. Because the moving van is the thing that contains everything else. You know, when you move house, it all goes into the back of that truck. The Pantechnicon, the moving van. And the promise that I will be God to you, it's that promise that contains everything else. Answers to prayer, salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. It's all in that promise. I will be God to you. And that promise is what makes these people different. They have a place. Go to the land I will show you. Um, I have a slight indication that this particular image does not originate in Abraham's day because you look at it closely. There's some telephone poles in the middle of it, which I doubt were there then. But it sort of represents the land God led him to. It looks not too different from what the land looks like now. Go to the land. Why land? Why is this land thing a part of the story? I'll give two reasons. One is land... Uh, a physical place was part of the picture in the beginning, in Eden, and God is committed to restoring that original plan that he had in the beginning. He hasn't changed his mind. He wants his people to have a place. So at one level, the significance of this promised land is as a replacement for the land Adam and Eve lost when they sinned. That's part of it. But there's more than that. Because God's mandate for this covenant people is that they will extend God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. And as we'll see when we get to the New Testament in a few minutes, the land becomes the staging ground for God extending his kingdom to all the nations of the earth. It goes Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It begins in that land that God gives Abraham. It's not just just for Israel to gather and worship in, although it's that. It's for them to gather and worship and then a a staging ground for the blessing to go forth. Matter of fact, when Solomon dedicates the temple of 1 Kings 8, I believe it is, he prays to God when they've finished building the temple and he prays and he says, Lord, if a Gentile comes, if a Gentile hears of your great name and he comes to this house, Would you hear his prayer and grant his prayer so that the nations of the earth will know that you are the real God? Jerusalem, the temple, the land, all of it is is a staging ground for God extending his kingdom to the nations. What's God's purpose in this part of the story? It has to do with grain. God promises to bless all the nations of the earth in Genesis 12, through Abraham and his descendants. Before you even get out of the other end of the book of Genesis, you see this coming true. Abraham's great-grandson, his name is Joseph. You know the Joseph story, abducted by his brothers, hauled down to Egypt in slavery, all his adventures and misadventures in Egypt. He becomes the one that God positions and gifts prophetically and administratively to save the Egyptians of all people from starvation. And because of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, 
the Egyptians and the other nations round about were able to come. It's in Genesis 41, 57. People came from all over, not just Egyptians, because they had stored up the, the grain at the, at the advice of Joseph. There was grain in Egypt. The word got around. There was bread in Egypt. Why was there bread in Egypt? Because they listened to someone from Abraham's family. It's a picture of God using this nation to bless all the nations of the earth. Second Chronicles 9, much later in the story, but it's the same idea. There's a king reigning in Jerusalem. His name is Solomon. He's very wise. Second Chronicles 9.23, we're told that the kings of all the nations of the earth heard about the wisdom that God had put in Solomon's heart and they came to sit at King Solomon's feet to learn and receive this wisdom. They went home better able to administrate their kingdoms because of King Solomon who was a son of Abraham. Do you see the picture here? That's why God raises up this nation is to bring his blessing to the nations of the earth. New Testament, which I'll get to in a second. Remember the way the book of Matthew, which is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New, it's the beginning of the New Testament, it begins in very much Old Testament style with a genealogy. Genesis keeps saying these are the generations of this, these are the generations of that, etc. It's all the way through Genesis. You turn over into the book of Matthew and it says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which is a New Testament way of saying these are the generations of. It's the same thing. And he starts with Abraham, interestingly, and brings it all the way down to Jesus himself. The point being in Matthew's theology, do you get it? The fulfillment of all those promises to Father Abraham is Jesus. And the good news that he brings, salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, all of that, that's part of the big moving van promise that God gives us through the covenant with Abraham fulfilled in Christ. Okay, now a big fast forward. Part four in the drama is Christ himself. God's people. God's people in this part of the story are condensed into one man. There he is. They're condensed into one man. Jesus is the people of God. In the opening scenes, particularly in the Gospels, we see this indicated in a number of ways. Um, God called Israel in, back in Genesis or no Exodus at the burning bush. God tells Moses, "You go to Pharaoh and you tell him that Israel, these slaves he's using, are my firstborn son." They are my son. Jesus gets baptized and he comes up out of the water and a voice comes out of the sky. This is my son. This sonship idea. Now he's the divine son. Israel was the covenant son. But it's the same term, son. He's like Israel condensed into one man. After, they, after the great Exodus events, they spent 40 years in the desert. And when you read through Exodus and especially the book of Numbers you see that they were not altogether faithful (laughs) to their calling as a covenant nation when they were in the desert. So a desert for Israel in these days, in Jesus' day, the desert had the connotations of a time of chronic failure and rebellion. Jesus goes into the desert. He's replaying the Israel story with a big difference. Israel was faithless. He's faithful. 
He stands against the enemy's temptations. He doesn't turn rocks into bread. He sticks with his father and with his father's agenda. Israel condensed into one man. What's God's place at this point in the story? His place is among sinners. I've always been gripped by this. How does Jesus' public mission begin and end? It begins and ends the same way. Christ among sinners. He goes to get baptized. We're told, especially it's clear in Mark, all Jerusalem and Judea went out to hear John and to receive baptism. So we're not talking a couple of dozen people. We're probably talking over the time of John's extended ministry, many, many thousands of people. I've always thought Christ, Jesus got there. He probably had to wait in the queue for his turn. So he begins with a public identification with sinners. He's among sinners. That's his place. And that, of course, is how his earthly mission ends because he dies between two criminals, beginning and end. Along the way, he's accused by his enemies. Oh, what's he know? He's a friend of sinners. Well, they were right about that. He would also be the savior of sinners. What is God's purpose at this point in the story? Now, we could spend every Sunday morning for the rest of 2016, literally, on exploring and digging out the riches of God's purpose in Christ's mission on earth. It's a a well you never get to the bottom of. This morning, I want to just touch one among many possible points. Jesus is coming to restore something. That's why the Father sends him. He's come to restore to us the capacity to rule and rest. When God tells Adam and Eve, you will rule, let them rule, he highlights wildlife. And the first thing he mentions is fish. How do you control fish? In Luke 5, it's the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The disciples have been fishing all night, not come up with anything, empty net, and he says, throw the net on the other side. Can you imagine what experienced fishermen would think of advice like that? I wonder if they were rolling their eyes, you know, he's a carpenter, what's he know? Anyway, they, they do it, and you know the story. The nets were so full, the nets were ripping because of the weight of the catch that came in. Through him, they're ruling over the fish. Do you see it? He's come to restore the capacity to rule. If you feel like you've got zero self-control, you lose your temper at nothing. You think lustful thoughts at nothing. You're anxious over some stupid, petty thing. If you're like all that, you're like me. <laughs> we, you know, we need this, the capacity to rule our own spirits. We don't want to be like King David, cause all kinds of heartache through his lack of ruling his own spirit. We, through Jesus and his Holy Spirit, we can rule our own spirit and make choices to be faithful to him. He has come to restore to us the capacity to rule. He's also come to restore to us the capacity to rest. The picture there, of course, is the feeding of the 5,000. 
Again, Mark's version is this, the gospel I, I know the best. It says that Jesus instructed the, the disciples to have the people, the crowds, sit down. And the Greek word there is recline. Usually they just say sit. It would do us a better service if it said recline because it reminds us of the echo verse, which is Psalm 23, he makes me lie down. And Mark says they reclined in the what? In the green grass. Well, you don't get a prize for thinking, realizing what the connection back to the Psalms is. He's come to fulfill the 23rd Psalm, and they are reclining in the green grass. It's a picture of rest. Why a picture of rest? Because that's why God sent him to restore to us the capacity to rest. We can be like David and write a psalm like Psalm 3. I've got a crisis looming in my life, but I am going to have, in Jesus' name and in relying on him, a good night's sleep. He's the Lord who gives rest to his people. How does he do this? Those three pictures tell it. He dies on the cross among sinners between two criminals to break the ruling and controlling power of sin. He rises again to lead us into a new life. Note, the resurrection happened at dawn on the first day of the week. There's all kinds of clues God builds into this story about new beginning, new beginning, new beginning. Dawn, first day of the week. The sun's coming up. He dies. He breaks the power of death. He rises. He breaks the power of sin. He rises to break the power of death. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to enable us to receive from him the capacity to rule and the capacity to rest. Part five, church and mission. The people of God in this part of the story are the church. It's Jews and Gentiles together living by faith in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Membership in this house is not, and here's one of the shifts from the old covenant into the new, it's not now by, uh, by ancestry, it's simply by faith in Jesus. That brings you into the house. It's Gentiles joining in on the inheritance of Israel. And we're full heirs together with Israel, we're told in Ephesians. God's people is Jews and Gentiles living by the Spirit. What about place? Did you have, was that up on the screen before? Okay, I goofed up this, the images. Just think, that's the house. We get invited to live there with Old Testament Israel. Okay, Jews and Gentiles living by the Spirit. I'm not good with buttons yet. That's God's people. That's, that's the image of God's people. Now, what about the place? The place is wherever he places us. In Matthew 13, there are not, there's, there's all the parables. That's the, that's the parables chapter in the book of Matthew. There are two parables of the sower in that chapter. Most people know about the first one where the seed that gets spread around represents the message of the gospel. That's, that's the beginning of Matthew 13. That's the best known one. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus tells another sower parable another seed parable. 
And in this one, the seeds don't represent the message of the gospel. They represent people. Matthew 13, verse 38, you can check it out. 13, 38, the seeds in this parable are the sons of the kingdom. It's the term he uses, the sons of the kingdom. And here's an image, the sower sowing the sons of the kingdom in the field, and the field is the world. Pick one of the little dots there in the image. They represent individual seeds. Pick one and just agree in your heart with the Lord. That dot is you. And he knows where he is planting you. That's your place. The church doesn't have a physical piece of real estate the way Israel did. It's a, the place thing is changed when you get into the New Testament. Your place may be, think of that little dot falling onto the ground, might be Tesco. It may be a street in your neighborhood. Just wherever God has you, that's your place. Last week, Jim Elliott died. How many, if you raise your hand if you know who Jim Elliott was, the, the famous missionary in Ecuador. He was martyred for his faith 60 years ago last week. There's a little website they've set up in honor of him. It's really powerful to read it. And all his quotes, things that he would say, one of which is this, wherever you are, be there. I like that. Underline B. Wherever you are, just be there. Don't be half there. Don't be a third there. Be there. He did that and he paid with his life, but brought great glory to the name of Christ. God's place is where he places us. What about God's purpose? You remember what we said earlier about the land God gave Abraham, that part of why he did it was that it would serve ultimately as a staging ground. In Luke's resurrection narrative, we read this. Jesus says, he's the risen Jesus, he says to the disciples, Luke 24, verse 47, forgiveness of sins must be preached in my name to all nations, And then the clincher, beginning in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is no longer the destination point. For centuries in Israel, it was a destination. Three times a year, Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, you drop what you're doing, you go to Jerusalem and worship. It's a destination in the Old Covenant. Christ changes that. He is the game changer. Now Jerusalem, the destination, becomes Jerusalem, the launch pad. Forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a little map there meant to be uh, show um, Judea and Samaria and of course the ends of the earth. Finally, the final act is about creation again. Creation again, part six. Who are God's people in this part of the story? They're the lamb worshipers. The end of Revelation 6, it's, Revelation 6 is a grim chapter. Because it's all about the seals on the scroll being opened up and then judgments begin to happen on earth. 
when you get to the sixth, sixth seal, it's probably the most severe, such that the wicked at that point in the story are running for cover. They're calling to the mountains saying, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of God and the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come. And then they ask a hugely important question. We need to ask it. The question has three words. Who can stand? Who can stand in the face of the judgment of God? Well, if you keep going over into chapter 7, there's an answer to that and it's good news John has another vision and he sees a multitude that no one could number. Where have we heard that language before? Abraham, come on out of the tent. Come on out, Abraham. I know it's the middle of the night. Okay, look at those stars, Abraham. Can you count them, Abraham? Tell me how many there are. Abraham says to God, I can't count them. No one could count them. They're uncountable. And John sees this multitude and this vision God gives him. And counting the multitude is like Abraham trying to count the stars. And a multitude no one could number from every tribe, every nation, every language, every, every everything. Because of God calling one man, making him into one nation, all the nations are able now to stand in front of the Lord. Now, stands the key word. What are they doing? These people, all different colors, all different languages, all different everything, they're all doing the same thing. I saw them with palm branches in their hands. Here's the clincher, standing. Remember the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? John says, I have the answer. It's those that worship the Lamb. In the last days, and we're in them now, and at the very, very end when the final judgment comes, who can stand? Well, the answer is the Lamb worshipers. Let's renew our commitment in these days to be Lamb worshipers. Lately, I've been distracted and fretting by a hundred different things. And I felt the Lord say to me in the last couple of days, stop the fretting and start worshiping. Be a lamb worshiper. Let's get around that throne. What's God's place at this point in the story? God is not in the hospital like this lady. God's place is to be at work in a world that's in labor. The end times are a bad time and a good time. If you just read Revelation 6, you're going to think they're a bad time. It's all about famines and wars and rumors of wars, etc. But if you read Jesus' words in Mark 13, also Matthew 24, they're parallel accounts. He describes all the same things, wars, rumors of wars, famines and all that. And he puts a very interesting label on the whole thing. He calls them birth pains. Raise your hand if you've ever given birth to a child. Okay, put your hand down. How many enjoyed the contractions? Okay. Didn't see too many hands on that. How many, looking back, say it was worth it? I'm sure. Because when birth comes, it's because something good is coming. And God is bringing something to birth in the last days. All that's going on, you can look at it the Revelation 6 way and that's valid, but don't let that be your only paradigm. There's also the Mark 13 paradigm where they're called birth pains. God is bringing something to birth. See it that way, it's got hope in it. You know what he's bringing to birth? 
That's the same picture I used at the beginning. He's bringing to birth a new creation. And note, it's new heaven and new earth. There's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. I mean, a physical planet, but renewed, transformed, changed. And then heaven, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down onto that earth. The differences are not going to be that it's going to be all of a sudden non-spiritual like we think of heaven. It's going to be physical forever. Jesus says he's going to have wine and bread with us there. It's a new earth. Take that literal. It's a new earth. The difference is not that it's spiritual and not physical. The difference is it is physical, but there's no death. There's no pain. There's no mourning. There's no tears. Those of you that just raise your hands that are moms, you know when your kids were little and they come crying to you, mommy, mommy, with some huge crisis like their toy fell down the stairs or something, what you would need to do is wipe the tears from their eyes. And that's what scripture says God is going to do for all of his people in this final chapter in the story. Maybe you feel like you've got more than your share of tears. Well, okay, fair enough. But they're going to get wiped away. And consider this. When you wiped the tears from your children's eyes, how close did you have to get to them to do that? You can't do it from the other end of the room. You had to get right up close, and God's going to get right up close and wipe the tears from all of our eyes. That's the climactic triumph of grace and mercy at the end of the story. In Revelation 22, we're told they would reign forever. Reign R-E-I-G-N, forever. What's that remind us of? The original agenda. They would rule and they would rest. They would reign, rule, rest. And they'll have rest from their labors. The original paradigm is all going to come true. You remember what we... I'm coming into the finish line here. You remember in the Old Testament what would happen to you if you saw God's face? Tell me. You die on the spot. Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see his face. The photo gives a teeny bit of a glimpse of the sun coming up. However bright that image, however bright the sun is at sunrise, God's face is brighter yet. And we're going to see his face. We're going to gaze forever into his face. It's not because his holiness is diminished. It's because our holiness will increase because of the work he is going to do in us. Let's review. We'll turn back to Steve. Creation is about rule and rest. Then there was a time of crisis and commitment about failure on mankind's part, but God's faithfulness. He didn't let sin conquer the world. He kept it going. Covenant is how God steps in to fix the train wreck created by Adam and to ultimately bring blessing on the nations. Then he sends Christ to fully restore rule and rest by dying, rising, ascending, and sending his spirit. Then then Jesus sends his church out on a mission to bring the increase of his kingdom. Jerusalem is the staging ground and out from there to the nations of the earth. And then creation again 
when every tear will get wiped away. That's something to look forward to. Amen. Amen.